we get on to the topic of diligence uh, today, Adhapi. According to the definition, the practice of Satipatthana requires the establishment of four particular mental qualities, which can be taken to represent the mental faculties of energy, wisdom, mindfulness and concentration. So, Adhapi uh, uh, <coughs> is diligence. Uh, representing energy, and then uh, sampajana, uh, clearly knowing, represents wisdom, sati, mindful, uh, <coughs> mindfulness, and lastly, um, freedom from desires and discontent, vinaya abhicha dhamanasa, that's uh, representing concentration. So, the astute will notice that those are four of the five faculties, sadhavirya, sati, samadhi, panya. So the, the what are called the five spiritual faculties, have um, sati or mindfulness as the central one, and then uh, uh, energy and concentration, virya and samadhi, that balance each other, and then sadha and panya, faith and wisdom, that balance each other. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, these um, uh, the four that are listed here, with, with all of the different uh, aspects of Satipatthana, they um, they're, they're covering uh, four of those five, and uh, for, <coughs> the aspect of faith is not mentioned. But um, I think we in, you can come up with your own particular uh, ideas or, or perspectives on why uh, faith might be left out. But since that um, <coughs> the the quality of sada, the, the very fact that you're sort of picking up the practice and applying yourself to it in the first place demonstrates as a as a faith or a sense of confidence that this is something worth doing. So uh, these uh, these four qualities, Adhapi, Sampajana, Sati, and Vinaya, Abhijha, Dhammanasa. So that's diligence, uh, clear knowing, mindfulness, and then freedom from uh, hankering and fretting from desires and discontent. The first of these four qualities is the quality of diligence. The term diligent, Adhapi, is related to the word Tapas, which connotes self-mortification and ascetic practices. It's also the um, the word for heat, um, and so tapas or tapasin is a, a, a yogi, and tapas um, it re uh, represents the the kind of um, spiritual power. So that in uh, the Buddha's time, and, and uh, Venerable Ananya goes into this in some detail, <coughs> the, the Buddha's time, most yogis or ascetics were known as uh, tapasin. Uh, they were tapasis. They were like uh, the people who uh, uh, say living a life in order to generate tapas or or um, spiritual heat, quote unquote, and so that uh, um, is based on the idea that the more austerity, the more painful um, striving that you engage in, the more uh, difficulty and discomfort that you experience, that's somehow intrinsically generating a quality of of spiritual power. So Lord, uh, Lord Shiva was known as the great uh, tapasin or the great uh, spiritual yogi. And that this um, uh, this word tapas represents the kind of um, gathered spiritual strength that those kind of austerities would generate. That's the the the, the view of it. So uh, uh, even though the the Buddha did use, uh, as in this phrase here, um, uh, atapi, did use the word tapas uh, in his teaching, it's also I feel it's it's significant that um, the Buddha deliberately used the word Nibbāna 
as the um, representation of the spiritual goal. Again, Nibbana was not a word that was coined by the Buddha, but it doesn't seem to have been used that much before his time as representing the sort of the culmination of the spiritual goal. And of course, Nibbana means coolness. So you have uh, the goal of the spiritual practice of most of his contemporaries would be tapas, to generate heat. But the Buddha is, uh, I feel, uh, this is one of my pet theories, <laughs> one of the ways that the Buddha was getting people's attention was saying, no, no, not heat, coolness, Nibbana, Nibbana, cool down, chill, chill, cool. <clears throat> and uh, uh, there's no better way of um, getting people's attention than by saying the opposite of the people who seem to be in the same trade that, that you are. You go, oh my goodness, what coolness? No, 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 we want heat. So uh, this word tapas, uh, so it, re it, uh, it literally means heat, but it's, uh, it represents the, uh, the quality of austerity or the endurance of uh, painful feeling with a spiritual purpose in mind. And then that, uh, the understanding was that the more um, the painfulness that you endure, then the more of this kind of... Um, uh, spiritual power, this sort of what they call mojo <laughs> in America, anyway. Uh, it's probably an African word originally. But the, the more this uh, spiritual strength is is built up. Um, so the, the uh, when the Buddha uses the word athapi, then it's um, it's related to that. Also, uh, the the a at the beginning of athapi is a long a. So when when you have a like ma, uh, mara is death, amara means deathless. Um, if it's a short A at the beginning, it's a negative. If it's a long A at the beginning, then it is usually something that emphasizes it. So the word Nanda means joy, and Ananda means joyful. So uh, similarly, uh, <coughs> Tapas uh, is, um, uh, means um, diligence, or, uh, or, or means diligent, and, or, or that kind of energy. And then atapi is um, uh, sort of uh, energy-filled, or that, uh, that something that is, um, say, uh, replete, or, or uh, um, uh, say, blessed with that quality of, of uh, energy and, and spiritual strength. So it's uh, atapi is a long a t long a p i atapi. So the first of the four is the quality of diligence. The term diligent, atapi, is related to the word tapas, which connotes self-mortification and ascetic practices. The use of such vocabulary is surprising, since the Buddha did not consider self-mortification to be conducive to the realization of nibbana. To better understand the Buddha's position, the historical context should be considered. A substantial number of wandering ascetics in ancient India regarded self-mortification as the model path to purification. Jain and Ajivaka ascetics considered death by ritual suicide to be the ideal expression of successful realization. It's an interesting concept. <laughs> Commonly accepted means for spiritual development were prolonged fasting, exposure to extremes of temperature, and the adoption of particularly painful postures. Although the Buddha did not categorically reject such practices in their entirety, he openly criticized the belief that self-mortification was necessary for realization. Before his awakening, the Buddha himself had been influenced by the belief that spiritual purification requires self-mortification. Based on this mistaken belief, he had pursued ascetic practices to considerable extremes without being able to realize awakening in that way. 
He found, ultimately, that awakening does not depend on mere asceticism, but requires mental development, in particular the development of sati. Therefore, the form of asceticism the Buddha later taught was predominantly a mental one, characterized by a firm opposition to unwholesome thoughts and tendencies. So I thought at this point, by way of illustration, I'd read out another passage from the... Uh, the discourse called The Noble Quest, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, and that's uh, Sutta number 36 from the Majjhima Nikaya, Middle Length Discourses. So this is describing the, the Buddha's description of his time of, of um, practice as a yogi before his enlightenment. Now three similes occurred to me spontaneously, never heard before. Suppose there were a wet, sappy piece of wood lying in water and a man came with an upper fire stick thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. So when it's up, an upper fire stick is when you, uh, you start a fire by rubbing uh, two pieces of wood together, you have a, a piece of wood down below and then a little stick on top and you, you make a dent in the, in the lower piece of wood and you rub the stick uh, back and forth in the little hole and that's where the, the friction happens. And then, So this is called an upper fire stick is the one on top. <clears throat> so a man came with an upper fire stick thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. How do you conceive this? Would the man light a fire and produce heat by taking the upper fire stick and rubbing the wet, sappy piece of wood lying in water with it? No, Lord. Why not? Because it's a wet, sappy piece of wood, and besides, it's lying in water. So the man would reap weariness and disappointment. So too, while a monk or Brahmin lives still bodily and mentally not withdrawn from sensual desires, and while his lust, affection, passion, thirst and fever for sensual desires are still not quite abandoned and quieted within him, then, whether the good monk or Brahmin feels painful, racking, piercing feelings imposed by striving, or whether he does not, he is, in either case, incapable of knowledge and vision and supreme enlightenment. This was the first simile that occurred to me spontaneously, never heard before. Again, suppose there were a wet, sappy piece of wood lying on dry land, far from water, and a man came with an upper fire stick thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. How do you conceive this? Would the man light a fire and produce heat by taking the upper fire stick and rubbing it with the wet, sappy piece of wood lying on dry land? No, Lord. Why not? Because it's a wet, sappy piece of wood, even though it's lying on dry land, far from water. So the man would reap weariness and disappointment. So too, while a monk or Brahmin lives still only bodily withdrawn from sensual desires, and while his lust, affection, passion, thirst and fever for sensual desires are not quite abandoned and quietened within him, then, whether the good monk or Brahmin feels painful, racking, piercing feelings imposed by striving, or whether he does not, he is in either case incapable of knowledge and vision and supreme enlightenment. This was the second simile that occurred to me spontaneously, never heard before. Again, suppose there were a dry, sapless piece of wood lying on dry land far from water, and a man came with an upper fire stick thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. How do you conceive this? Would the man light a fire and produce heat by taking the upper fire stick and rubbing the dry, sapless piece of wood lying on dry land far from water with it? Yes, Lord. Why so? Because it's dry, a dry, sapless piece of wood, and besides it's lying on dry land far from water. So too, while a monk or Brahmin lives both bodily and mentally withdrawn from sensual desires, and while his lust, affection and passion, thirst and fever for sensual desires are quite abandoned and quietened within him, then, whether the good monk or Brahmin feels painful, racking, piercing feelings imposed by striving, or whether he does not, he is in either case capable of knowledge and vision and supreme enlightenment. 
This was the third simile that occurred to me spontaneously, never heard before. So that, that uh, I feel, is a very important insight. Uh, and you think, well, he's really got it there. He's, uh, he's, uh, the Buddha uh, obviously had a, a real turning point, realizing that it's not, a, it's not just a matter of, of the amount of effort and pain that you put into it, but it's also whether the mind has abandoned uh, sensual desires and also the way of life is uh, free from engagement in, in the sensual desire and that kind of attachment. But then uh, he goes straight on to saying, I thought, suppose with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained and crushed my mind with my mind. Then as a strong man might seize a weaker by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain and crush him, so with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained and crushed my mind with my mind. Sweat ran from my armpits while I did so. Though tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness established, yet my, bodily, my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by the painful effort. But such painful feelings as arose in me gained no power over my mind. I thought, suppose I practice the meditation that, that is without breathing. I stop the in-breaths and the out-breaths in my mouth and nose. So, so <laughs> the, uh, I feel that's an interesting kind of um, progression whereby he's had this insight into it's not a matter of how much... Uh, uh, effort that, that you put in. It's not just the, the amount of, of difficulty and stress, but it's whether the mind is, is free from desire. That's what makes a difference. But he still <laughs> launches into this really uh, extreme uh, uh, exertion and um, that, uh, say that, that kind of power of, of uh, commitment or just that uh, sense of intensity was still, um, still there in his way of, of approaching working with his mind. So then to continue with this one. Now therefore, the form of asceticism, quote-unquote, that the Buddha later taught was predominantly a mental one, characterized by a firm opposition to unwholesome thoughts and tendencies. It's an intriguing statement found in the discourses. The cultivation of the awakening factors is referred to as the highest form of exertion. Such subtler forms of austerity, quote-unquote, did not easily receive recognition by contemporary ascetics, and on several occasions the Buddha and his followers were ridiculed for their seemingly easy-going attitude. So uh, after the Buddha's enlightenment, then he, um, he discouraged that kind of um, uh, uh, so extreme um, sort of striving and the, you know, crushing mind with mind and so forth. But because um, the Buddha didn't encourage the, sort of the, the kind of austerities that the others were, were fond of, like um, extreme fasting or standing on one leg for 40 years or uh, you know, hanging from, a, from the branch of a tree by one hand or such like things, that he was uh, uh, regularly they were described as a bunch of wimps. You know, kind of, these are sort of fake ascetics. They, they weren't really serious. You know, How can you um, possibly just sort of yeah, sit there and watch your breath and call that call that practicing Dharma. You know, you're not you're not torturing yourself in any way. It's it's also interesting that when um uh Alexander the uh, <coughs> the um well <coughs> uh, Alexander of Macedonia uh, invaded India, he uh, along with his army he brought along uh, some Greek philosophers uh, as well. And so they, um, uh, when he arrived in India, and he wanted to, to, to uh, encourage some interreligious dialogue and discussion with the local, uh, the local religious people, then <coughs> they uh, they arranged a meeting with some of the local yogis and the, the philosophers who come along with Alexander, 
And so they, they were, and in the records of, the, of that encounter, they are astonished by being, uh, they, sort of, they come along and they're sort of ready to have their philosophical discussion and ready to talk about Plato and Aristotle and such like. And then these yogis that they meet, um, uh, they, um, they invite them to, to go out and sit on this bare rock in the middle of the, the noonday sun, take off all their clothes and, you know, sit and get roasted for a few hours. In the in the baking heat of the of the Asian uh, Asian sun, and then they can talk about philosophy. So, <laughs> as it um, the the Greek approach towards philosophy was very different from the uh, Indian yogic form. Another point worth considering is that in ancient India there were a variety of deterministic and fatalistic teachings. In contrast, the Buddha emphasized commitment and effort as essential requirements for achieving realization. According to him, only by way of desire, effort and personal commitment can desirelessness be realized. Effort, as an expression of wholesome desire, leads along the path until with full realization all desire will be abandoned. In this context, the Buddha at times reinterpreted expressions commonly used within ascetic circles to express his own position. The quality of being diligent, Atapi, in the Satipatthana context, appears to be one such instance. A different example of rather forceful vocabulary can be found in those passages in which the Buddha described his firm resolution prior to awakening. Let my flesh and blood dry up, I will not give up, or I will not change my posture until realization has been gained. Concerning the resolve to refrain from changing posture, it needs to be kept in mind that the Buddha was able to achieve deep meditative absorption so he could sit for long periods of time in the same posture without pain. Thus what these expressions point to is not so much the endurance of a painful sitting posture as a strong and unwavering commitment. Similar expressions are used by some of his disciples on the brink of realization. Since the breakthrough to realization can only take place in a balanced state of mind, it might be best not to take these expressions too literally. And as uh, Lumpur Samedi would often point out, that uh, the the various uh, people that he's known who have made that kind of a vow, like I'm going to go into this hut, I'm going to go into my kuti, and I'm not going to come out until I retain full and complete enlightenment. So that usually they're completely they're, they're completely crazy. They come, they run out screaming after a you know, a, a, you know, a couple of days. But uh, that. Um, that kind of assertion, uh, even though it's mimicking what's there in the scriptures, it is often based on uh, a, uh, a kind of an idealism and an, an impractical um, assessment of what you're capable of or, or what um, um, what the, the, that sense of commitment depends on. This uh, um, past, the, the the mention about um, uh, <coughs> desirelessness being uh, it's only by way of desire effort and personal commitment can desirelessness be realized as uh, a um a uh, a particular exchange where the um ananda is talking with um uh, what's his name i think it's udaya dabba um uh, in uh, kosambi at the uh, and he's uh, and this fellow says um uh, uh that he he <coughs> you know, how can it be that um, the uh, he, she said surely that the, uh, the the Buddha's teaching is about abandoning desire and then Venerable Ananda says yes but uh, um, uh, we use desire in order to abandon desire and then uh, this the fellow says this, uh, this layman says well that's impossible this is, this is circular how can you 
How can you use desire to abandon desire? That's, that's a circular argument. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. It has no meaning. And then the, the Venerable Ananda says, well, did you have the wish to come to, here to the Gosita Rama, to the Gosita's Park? Yes. Well, and then having arrived at the Gosita Rama, what happened to that desire? Well, uh, I'd arrived, so I, you know, the desire fell away. He said, well, yes, you, you needed the desire to get here, but once the, the desire had been fulfilled, then, uh, then the, the desire falls away. So it's exactly the same way that you use the desire, the chanda, to say set the direction for your practice, um, but then once the the goal has been realised, then that uh, that that desire falls away; it no longer has any relevance. And so that's how you you're using desire to to reach the end of, of desire. So it's a it's a simple statement, um, but it's a it's very significant because oftentimes uh, we read the Four Noble Truths or we read Buddhist teachings, and it says all kinds of desire. You know, desire is the cause of suffering. So then. People easily misinterpret that to think, well, Buddhists shouldn't have any kind of desire. We shouldn't want anything, or that we're supposed to somehow um, be a, a completely passive or just let life happen. Um, but uh, I, I, the point that Venerable Analio makes here uh, is saying uh, it's only by way of desire, effort, and personal commitment that uh, that you can you know, realize the Dhamma, and that. It, the the Buddha in various places says, you know, this is a path of effort. It's a path of of um, of, of you know uh, the application of, of energy. It's it's one that requires diligence. <laughs> it's it's not a, a path of passivity. And uh, as he says, that there was quite a lot of deterministic or fatalistic teachings around in the Buddha's time. It's just oh, you know, the karma just unfolds. There's nothing that we can do. We, our, our choices aren't really choices. Um, it just uh, uh, the karma unravels according to its own patterns and, uh, and and so that there um, this simple point of of yes we can make an effort uh, yes we need to make an effort and yes our choices make a difference that was one of the defining features of uh, of buddha dhamma and this element of of, of effort or diligence atapi is a part of that it's like the uh, giving a, a direction to uh, to the towards the realization of dhamma and then if you like, atapi or diligence is the, the 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 fuel, the quality of commitment and energy that goes into sustaining that that uh, that effort. In a similar way, the expression diligent atapi might not have carried the same literal connotations for the Buddha as it did for his more ascetically inclined contemporaries. In fact, in the Kayaga, Kayagata Sati Sutta. Diligent, atapi, comes up in relation to experiencing the bliss of absorption. Similarly, in a passage from the Indriya Sangyutta, the quality of diligence is combined with pleasant feelings, mental and physical. In these instances, diligent has clearly lost any relation to self-mortification and its concomitant physical pain. Since both deficiency of effort and excessive tension can obstruct one's progress, the quality of diligence is best understood as a balanced but sustained application of energy. Such balanced endeavor avoids, on the one hand, passive submission to quote-unquote destiny, a higher will, or personal idiosyncrasies, and on the other, excessive effort, self-assertive striving, and self-induced suffering in the name of a higher goal. So that quality of of energy is, on the one hand, it's sort of uh, not being... um, 
uh, taking a, a, a stance on passivity or just going along with destiny or high will or, or just going along with the flow of circumstance or on the other hand the excessive uh, self-assertive striving and self-inflicted suffering that comes from that. The Buddha once compared the balanced effort needed for proper progress to the tuning of a lute <coughs> whose strings should be neither too tight nor too loose. This comparison of mental cultivation to the tuning of a musical instrument illustrates the well-adjusted effort and sensitivity required for the development of the mind. The notion of a middle path of wise balance, avoiding the extremes of excessive and insufficient effort, has of course been one of the Buddha's central teachings since the time of his first discourse. It was this balanced middle path, the Majjhima Padipada, middle path approach, avoiding the two extremes of stagnation and excessive striving, which had enabled him to gain awakening. There's also a passage, the very first sutta in the Sangyutta Nikaya, where um, the, the, uh, the connected discourses, where the Buddha says, uh, "How is it? Uh, how is it that I crossed the flood? Is it by uh, when I when I strove too hard, I was swept away? When I um, when I uh, stayed still, then I sank. It was through neither staying still nor nor struggling that's how I crossed the flood." Doesn't explain exactly what he means by that, <laughs> but it gives you that that sense of of the middle way of of uh, both. Uh, being too passive and just sort of letting things um, you know, pass by without engaging intention and effort, or that um, self-centered striving that the the two either you sink or you get swept away. But by neither neither um, stopping still nor by struggling, that's how you cross the flood. The practical implications of being diligent, quote unquote, can best be illustrated with two maxims from the discourses both of which use the word diligent, atapi. Quote, right now is the time to practice diligently. Unquote. And quote, you yourself have to practice with diligence. Unquote. Similar con uh, connotations underlie the occurrence of the quality of diligence in those passages that describe the serious commitment of a monk who retires into seclusion for intensive practice after having received a brief instruction from the Buddha. Applying these nuances to Satipatthana, to be diligent then, amounts to keeping up one's contemplation with balanced but dedicated continuity, returning to the object of meditation as soon as it is lost. So Atapi, then that, uh, that quality of diligence, uh, it's uh, uh, this uh, aspect of balance and uh, the, say the, the application of effort, so according to your own, your own limits, but also that sense of yeah something needs to be done just like uh, you know keeping with the routine of the retreat okay it's it's a uh, it's coming up to 8 30 it's time to get to the the hall it's uh, it's the uh, time to get up in the morning the meditation is going to begin it's uh, five o'clock you need to be there uh, so that that readiness to, to rise up and make the effort to get to the to the place even the simple things like keeping the routine um, also, enjoying the the sittings, the walking meditation, just that sense of of sticking with the uh, the, the practice, staying with the, the application of effort. So, this aspect of diligence of, uh, of uh, atapi is something that is relevant you know, all through the day, and that uh, the the tendency of them to just let the mind drift or think, okay, well, ding, the bell's gone, okay, <laughs> the 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 practice is is over, then. Uh, 
is also a, a mistake that, w- that we easily make. So sometimes we okay, practice, 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 and ding, oh, thank goodness that's over. And as uh, I often point out, sometimes the most peaceful moment of the meditation is when the bell rings, and then, and then I can stop doing that meditation thing because the, the, the meditation becomes the sort of stressful intrusion on peace, and then, ah, thank goodness that's over. Then the real peace is when we don't have to do anything. And it's not because we're being lazy, but oftentimes that the very uh, efforting uh, is creating more, more stress, more dukkha. And so that what is talked about here, that quality of, of balanced effort or atapi um, in a, being applied in a skillful way, uh, again, as I've been saying in the daily reflections, that the, the key aspect is learning how to apply effort, but without the sense of, of self. Um, and the sense of me having to do something, like me doing the practice, me following the breath, me needing to get liberated. But rather, uh, it, uh, it's <clears throat> even the, that me trying to practice on the, with the most um, uh, heartfelt sincerity, as long as there's a me trying to do something to get somewhere, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a stressor, that's creating uh, agitation, tension, and... and stress within the heart. So then, as soon as ding, the bell goes, then we can relax. <laughs> it's not because just the, the, you can release your knees from their, their locked up position, but it's the, to, to watching my mind, it's often that feeling of, of not having to be someone doing something for a moment. <laughs> but then there's that, that feeling of relief. So it's, it's in terms of applying effort, that uh, uh, I feel that the, the most uh, essential aspect of that is learning how to apply effort in a, a way that is um, free from self-view, so that it's not me trying to do something or me uh, trying to become something or me trying to get rid of something. But the effort is being applied, as he says, it's the, the, there needs to be a direction, application, and commitment, staying with the the practice staying with the routine, staying with the, the work of training the mind. But uh, if, as long as that's uh, based on, on uh, I, me, and mine, it's going to be creating more dukkha. So the, the, the great skill is learning how to work uh, to, uh, to guide the mind, to sustain that quality of, of effort, but without that, um, that sense of... Uh, of um, I uh, say a, a person who is uh, who is practicing, a person who is the experiencer, the doer, the the actor. So, uh, uh, Venerable um, uh, Punadamo, Ajahn Punadamo, his uh, who has the um, abbot of the Arrow River uh, Forest Hermitage in Canada, his his teacher uh, Kema Ananda used to use this this term, diligent effortlessness. To describe this, which I think is a really good term, diligent effortlessness. So there's that um, uh, sense of, of commitment and focus and, and, and energy, but also it's free from that stressing uh, aspect. So it's diligent but effortless. <laughs> and uh, and so also the more that we are able to get a feeling for how that works and to work in that way, then. You, uh, it, it becomes much more sustainable in a continuity of practice, whether you happen to be with others or you're by yourself, whether it's a formal situation or informal situation. There's a, a steady continuity 
So it, uh, there's not like the practice is hard work. I've got to really try. I've got to really try, and then and then you're sort of waiting for it all to be over. So <sighs> I'm looking forward to the end of the retreat when I can relax again. <laughs> well, the retreat should be the relaxation. Yeah, that should be. So that uh, if we are able to bring attention to how the mind handles the the, the, the making of effort. And to, to to explore that and see, well, is the is the mind creating more stress, more tension around this? Okay, then then there needs to be a shift of attitude. Um, it's not easy. You can't just t- decide to to do it differently and to make it change. But at least if we can see that the mind is doing that, is handling it in that way, then we can learn to sort of uh, uh, see uh, to. No, we can learn to, to see how that habit works and to be able to train the mind to, to not follow that and to they, uh, develop that skill of, of applying effort with, a, with a, an attitude of, of, uh, of easefulness. Yes? I wonder whether that is actually where the fifth element, faith, creeps in. Uh-huh, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah the um, that when right view is established, then there's that sense of orderliness, like what they call yadamaniyamata. That the, there's the orderliness of of how things work. That feeling of okay, the, this is it's that's, you know a, a sense of heading in the right direction. You, there's a, a, a quality of okay, the progress is being made, or oh, yes, this is moving towards clarity. This is moving towards uh, peacefulness. This is moving towards understanding. Aha! So that, that, and that, so that faith is that sort of readiness to move forward into the unknown. You don't you don't know what's happening next, but it gives is that so that confidence to to step forward into the unknown. So it's not a belief. It's not filling up the unknown with a with a hope or a <clears throat> or a belief, it, the, the unknown is still unknown. But uh, sadha is that, okay, <laughs> uh, I can step forward into that, that that readiness to to be open to the to the to the next thing and to to trust that that uh, <clears throat> it feels like it's a good direction. Well, let's just try that and see where it goes. And that readiness to to um, to sort of, in a way move into the unknown. But it does require that I break through this habit, you know, with the me doing, me trying, 
So, because that's just a habit, you know, it's, it's not even that I want that, but it's <laughs> automatic how I'm set up somehow, and sometimes I really need to see that. Often through suffering, you know, I can see that. Yeah, it was a great task for all, for virtually everybody. That uh, <coughs> the um, the Buddha said it's a uh, it's easier to for a, a person to single handedly conquer uh, an army of a thousand uh, a thousand times over than it is to conquer themselves. So the odds are not good, <laughs> but at least he was being realistic. You know, but. Uh, to win a million fights against others is is easier than to to uh, to know yourself really, but at least it gives you a sense. Of, okay, this is this is a really uh, <clears throat> major um, task, but it makes such a difference that uh, if if at least you, there's that recognition of the, uh, and seeing how when there's that moment of letting go and and self concern is is dropped. Then there can be seen. Okay, this is how effort is expanded. There's a, there's a, a kind of yeah. There's there's forward motion, um, but there's a, a relaxation in it as well. There's not me getting somewhere. Me me trying to do something. Aha! And so even if it's just for a half a second, for a, you know, a couple of seconds here and there, that we can get a feel for how that works and and uh, a sense. Of, oh right, because it's also it's interesting that the. The word ascetic in English comes from the Greek ascesis, which was used, uh, which refers to uh, kind of athletic training. So it was like the training of an athlete was 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 ascesis. So that uh, you're you're training, uh, you're you're putting yourself through uh, through uh, ex- the exer- exertion and and difficulty and discomfort. But the point is. Excellence in the in the athletic field—that's that's what you're you're training for—and so that the uh, ascesis in terms of spiritual asceticism is, in a way, it's a, it's a spiritual training. It's like you're, there is difficulty, there's effort needs to be expended, and, and patience needs to be uh, developed to, to deal with, with with difficulty and frustration and, and pain and so on. But the purpose of it is excellence. <laughs> the purpose of it is building those qualities of, of strength. And then, uh, when you are engaged, say if if you've ever been engaged in sports or an athletic um, competition, that as long as there's, I'm trying to win, I've got to, I've got to, and and the mind is obsessed with winning or beating the other person, then there's a kind of um, Stress and attention in the system. It's only when you, you you forget yourself and you just let the let the body run or let the let the the um, uh, that that sense of of um, uh, of competition fall away, and then then you find that you really do your best. <laughs> There's a as a, a, a mysterious way that it's a that the the uh, as long as you're worried about. Your performance and trying to get it right, then you're 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 always messing it up, or it's always out of balance. So when you forget yourself, you you know let go of yourself, and you just uh, the mind give the mind fully to the activity. It's the same with with playing music. Then uh, then things uh, go in the smoothest way and the most effective way possible. Does that make sense?
Yes. It's true that you, you don't get to that effortless thing without having practiced a huge amount. Like if you play an instrument, you spend years doing scales, for example. It doesn't matter what instrument. Um, and then in the end, you can play Mozart. But you don't get to playing Mozart just. Just by, by going into the shop and buying the flute, right? <laughs> <laughs> this really is a lot of, of, of very dull, boring... Just 10,000 hours. <laughs> yes, that, that's... Uh, that's in, in, <clears throat> so 10,000 hours of knee pain. <laughs> that's the shortcut. Yes, Mary, you had the question. Oh, no, I was just going to mention, I'm sure you're familiar with... Uh, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi? It's, it, it takes a lot of patience. It's one of the reasons why when the, the statement of the Buddha, patient endurance is the supreme tapas, is the supreme austerity. Because that's that uh, being patient with that, oh, it's me again. <laughs> it's the, me, the meditator, or me you know, me practicing, oh, here, here I am again. <laughs> that being, uh, say, being patient with that, the intensity of that, that habit. But uh, just as I was saying, it's when in those moments where there's a, a letting go and, and a, uh, the heart is freed from that self-creating um, uh, reflex, the, the ahankara eye-making and mamankara mind-making, then uh, I feel it's, it's very, it's, it's so helpful. It's very, very helpful to, in that moment, to say, oh, look, look at that. When that, when that is dropped, notice how life is. And so then you're you're, you're getting a, like a direct positive feedback and saying, okay, when that that is uh, that that self-centered habit is dropped, look look how life works. Aha! So that's the the washing up is a very good uh, practice, I think. Try and lose yourself in. Yes, especially if you're not waiting for it to be over. actually always believe that uh, a healthy spirit is within the healthy body and maybe because the body is more or less given to us it's kind of sense of union to everybody <laughs> to have a body uh, that doesn't really kind of believe in an unhealthy body and healthy spirit yeah, well, I wouldn't entirely go along with that because you can have a healthy spirit in a dying body. <laughs> or, you know, I've been with a lot of sick people who've uh, been wretchedly ill, but their mind's been absolutely fine. So, but, you know, the, the Greeks have many, many wise things to say, but uh, there's, um, you know, if you if you worship the healthy body, then a sick body equals an obstruction to enlightenment. Or or a dying body, but uh, if uh, uh, do you take the 
the the Buddhist approach is more you know the the body is is a, an aspect of experience it supports the life um, force but then it's also the the <coughs> the, the body is not self what, who yeah. and what we are yes that's what I, I wanted to underline that it's not self so they they came back to that idea of something that unites all us all. Um, Although we have to take care of the body, it doesn't really belong to whatever the mind means as a me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do the best you can with it, but it's only going in one direction. Yeah. It's a path that goes in one direction. <laughs> like Lumpo uh, <coughs> Chawad's people ask people, where, where have you come from? They say, oh, I came from Ubon. He said, no, where have you come from? <laughs> And then he say, "Yeah, you were born, right? You you come from your mother. And where are you where are you going? Oh, I'm going back to Ubon. No, no. Where are you going? <laughs> okay, yeah, into the into the earth and back to the four elements. So, um, just read a little bit more, and then on the um, the next quality, Sampajana. The second of the four mental qualities mentioned in the definition is sampajana, a present participle of the verb sampajanati. Sampajanati can be divided into pajanati, he or she knows, and the prefix san together, which often serves as an intensifying function in Pali compounds. Thus, sampajanati stands for an intensified form of knowing, for clearly knowing, quote-unquote. The range of meaning of clearly knowing, Sampajana, can be conveniently illustrated by briefly surveying some of its occurrences in the discourses. In a discourse found in the Diga Nikaya, clearly knowing stands for consciously experiencing one's own life as an embryo in a womb, including the event of being born. In the Majjhima Nikaya, one finds clearly knowing represented, representing the presence of deliberateness when one deliberately speaks of falsehood. In a passage in, from the Sangyutta Nikaya, clearly knowing refers to awareness of the impermanent nature of feelings and thoughts. A discourse in the Anguttara Nikaya recommends clear knowledge, sampajanya, uh, for overcoming unwholesomeness and establishing wholesomeness. Finally, the Itivutika relates clearly knowing to following the advice of a good friend. Common denominator suggested by these examples, selected from all five Nikayas, is the ability to fully grasp or comprehend what is taking place. Such clear knowledge can in turn lead to the, to the development of wisdom, panya. According to the Abhidhamma, clear knowledge does in fact already represent the presence of wisdom. Considered from an etymological viewpoint, this suggestion is convincing, since panya and some pajanati are closely related. But a close examination of the above examples suggests that Clearly knowing, Sampajana, does not necessarily imply the presence of wisdom. When one utters a falsehood, for example, one might clearly know one's speech to be a lie, but one does not speak the falsehood with wisdom. Quote, unquote. Similarly, while it's remarkable enough to be clearly aware of one's embryonic development in the womb, to do so does not require wisdom. Thus, though clear knowing might lead to the development of wisdom, in itself it only connotes to clearly know what is happening.
In the Satipatthana instructions, the presence of such clear knowledge is alluded to by the frequently recurring expression, he knows, pajanati, which is found in most of the practical instructions. Similar to clearly knowing, the expression, he knows, pajanati, at times refers to rather basic forms of knowing, but in other instances it connotes more sophisticated types of understanding. In the context of Satipatthana, the range of what a meditator knows includes, for example, identifying a long breath as long or recognizing one's physical posture. But with the later Satipatthana contemplations, the meditator's task of knowing evolves until it comes to include the presence of discriminative understanding, such as when one is to understand the arising of a feta in dependence on a sense door and its respective object. So they say the feta of, of uh, aversion um, uh, dependent on the eye, so seeing something that is uh, unpleasant or uh, a sound, say from the sense door of the ear, a, a, a sense desire, a, a, an attraction to something that you hear. This evolution culminates in knowing the Four Noble Truths as they actually are, a penetrative type of deep understanding for which, again, the expression he knows is used, Pajanati. Thus both the expression he knows, Pajanati, and the quality of clearly knowing, Sampajana, can range from basic forms of knowing to deep discriminative understanding. So that's a, in short, that means there's a range of meanings. So when it says uh, atapi, diligent, uh, sampajana, it can be from like a, a sort of a basic cognizing to a, a, a knowing which is uh, filled with, with understanding. So it covers that whole spectrum of meanings. And so when, um, uh, so say for example, if uh, in the area of, of um, uh say, Chitanupasana, say, knowing the distracted mind is distracted, say your mind is kind of racing around all over the place, it's really, really busy, confused and agitated. Uh, <clears throat> the clear knowing, the sampajana there is like, just to be able to reflect, wow, it's really out of control today. Now, that's sampajana. It's like, <laughs> what a racket. <laughs> this thing is completely out of control. That, that's sampajana, even though the content is confused, chaotic, and incredibly busy and noisy. That clear knowing is simply just like you can be aware of, of a lot of a lot of sound. Um, like the uh, the the mind can be aware of a of a whole mass of of noise going on. Like uh, sitting in the temple earlier today, a lot of wind. You know the 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 wind is blasting away. Some of you were sitting there. Maybe some of you maybe didn't notice, <laughs> but uh, I was paying attention to the. Listening to the wind and that sense of yeah, the wind is really making a racket. It's really blasting away, um, <clears throat> but yet there. Uh, so there's a lot of agitation and 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 change in the hearing realm, but yet that which is knowing the the movement is has got a quality of stillness. There's a um, that which is aware of it is not tied up with the with the noise with the with the agitation with the movement. So sampajana doesn't necessarily mean there's like a, a, a like an intellectual understanding or um, that <clears throat> that uh, or say it's not just the noise of the wind but it's noise of our thoughts and kind of, uh, rattling so doubts and confusions or aversions uh, that it still works in exactly the same way whether the sense object is say the sound of the wind or the sense object is is thoughts 
uh, it, it works in, a, in a, an identical fashion because sampajana is just that sense of, of oh this is what's happening the wind is blasting away or these thoughts are blasting away that's all and that that uh, establishment of mindfulness just to the extent of clear knowing it, it, it doesn't mean that the thoughts stop like it doesn't mean that the wind stops you can be you can be clearly aware of the the noise and the agitation the busyness of the wind without being caught up in that in exactly the same way there can be that a mindfulness of the busyness and agitated nature of thought without being caught up in that thought so this is an extremely useful insight and uh, you know many of uh, Lumpur Sumedho's teachings uh, in a way he he tends to fo- in Lumpur Sumedho's teachings he tends to focus on Chitanupasana that mindfulness of mind states and thoughts and emotions and moods you know, almost more than the, the other Satipatthanas um, <clears throat> but it, it's a, an extraordinarily significant area of the practice because we we so easily get um, so swept up with those uh, different impressions, and particularly with with thoughts and moods and emotions. Yeah. And I was wondering two different things um, related to this. First, um, the sampajana, from sampajanati, um, it's not analytical part, right? So would there be any? There's no discursive thinking in it, right? Or to what extent does one? examine the object with a sampajana or just observe well that's what he's saying is that there's quite a broad range of meanings those examples he's giving from the from the suttas the word um pajanati or, or uh, sampajana covers covers quite a, a a big range of meaning like uh, to know can mean you can know that it's it's seven minutes to seven, or you can know uh, the the four noble truths as a uh, in in a profound and complete way. The word know applies in both both respects, but the the object of or, or what's implied by that is kind of, is hugely different. And, and it's sort of raw, right? It's not that I'm thinking about the four noble truths as I'm applying some bhajanati the four noble truths or through that experience but I'm, I just know that here they are well the, 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 it's, it, it can mean both like he, he said there that the in that last little passage um, thus the, the expression he knows pajanati and the quality of clear knowing sampajana can range from basic forms of knowing like knowing that it's now six minutes to seven uh, to Dis- deep discriminative understanding it, it covers a whole big range so it might involve analytical conceptual knowledge or it might not it, it, it's, it's, a, it's like a big uh, a big range of meaning so like uh, as, uh, as, as is often the case you have to look at the context and see well what's what's, uh, what's being referred to or what, what's being implied by that you can't just assume but um the um, it doesn't nece- what I was saying before is it doesn't necessarily mean a conceptual understanding. we just in a way since that uh, that pajanati um, uh, or that quality of uh, sampajana, just knowing there is this as part of the refrain, just, that there is this feeling, there is this 
mind state, there is this aspect of the body. There, so that the knowledge there is this, um, as it says, su- sufficient for. Where are we? Let's see. Where the passage? Of course, it will escape me now. <laughs> Yeah. To the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So bare knowledge. So that think just that quality. Oh yeah, this this is what's happening now. So that it doesn't involve necessarily involve a, a, a kind of conceptual understanding or an, an analytical element at all. And maybe this is a little bit of pajanati versus sampajanati. Oh, the the verb is pajan uh, pajanati. That's the verb, meaning she or he knows. And then the quality of the clear knowing, that's like the, 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 uh, so a, um, the clear knowing is Sampajana. Okay, so Pajana is the verb. And, and then, the and then, the, uh, then Sampajana is the quality, clear knowing. Okay. So it's now five to seven, so maybe we'll leave it there. (laughs)